Hi, James Patterson here, producer of Just Cases, and welcome to this special bonus episode featuring a discussion between Melissa Caston and Robert French, the recently retired Chief Justice of the High Court. Now, I'm going to give you a bit of context for this discussion between Melissa Caston and Mr French. On September the 5th, the High Court will hear a legal challenge to the Australian government's postal vote on same-sex marriage. Broadly speaking, opponents of the postal vote are supporters of marriage equality. They say it should be up to our elected representatives to pass a law that legalises marriage for same-sex couples, rather than taking what they see as an unnecessary opinion poll. Postal votes tend to favour older demographics, who are also the most fervent opponents of marriage equality. Now, the postal vote is technically not a vote. Rather than being carried out by the Australian Electoral Commission, the $122 million survey is actually being carried out by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Now, a technical warning here for this episode, things are going to get very lawyery and very constitutionally, I swear, those are two words. Uh, stick with me while I set the scene. The legal basis of the High Court challenge, in fact, has nothing to do with human rights. Like many of these cases, the parties seek to support their position by identifying a law or a government action that falls foul of the Constitution. In the cases currently before the High Court, the plaintiffs, the Australian Marriage Equality Organisation and others, are arguing that the government lacks the power to spend the $122 million in the way that they've chosen. In recent years, the power of the executive arm of government to spend money as it sees fit has been examined more closely. Robert French was the Chief Justice of the High Court from 2008 until 2017, and in that time he presided over a number of cases that dealt with this very issue of executive spending. Your host Melissa Caston caught up recently with Mr French while he was a guest of Monash Law School. As he told Melissa, now remember we're getting very technical in this episode, so deep breath, our constitution allows the parliament to pass a law to spend money for a particular purpose that they define. These laws are called appropriations, and they're able to be worded pretty broadly. As Mr French noted, for years and years, it was enough simply that the appropriation had passed Parliament for it to be held as legal under our constitution. Then we had a case which came along in 2009 which changed that. We're in the midst of what was called the global financial crisis. Governments around the world were exercised by it. Australia had taken part in a whole lot of you know, international meetings, G20 and so forth. Um, how do you respond to this global financial crisis? And in particular, the crisis of confidence, which itself affects the performance of economies. So one of the measures which had been discussed internationally for dealing with this um, crisis of confidence in economies was something called fiscal stimulus. And that means you try to um, inject some money into an economy uh, to um, get people to spend. And the Commonwealth uh, Government decided that what it would do would be to um, uh, send out cheques to taxpayers, ranging from between, I think, about $250 to about $900, (coughs) so that the taxpayers could um, spend their money, uh, go off and buy flat TVs or something like that, Mm. keep the economy bubbling along on a sort of (laughs) bedrock of... It sounds (laughs) like a good idea. (laughs) Bedrock of confidence. There was a fellow who was a constitutional law academic, I know. Uh, Brian Pape, at the University of New England. And, uh, and he'd been waiting for a long time uh, to agitate uni- this issue. And uh, 
He didn't want the money. He didn't think the government had the power to uh, hand out money in that way. Uh, I called him later the uh, man who tried to bite the hand that tried to feed him. <laughs> anyway, Brian Pate brought an action <clears throat> in the High Court in which he challenged the validity or the authority of the executive to spend money in this way. Now, mm. how, what they'd done is they had, um, they had there was an appropriation and they had uh, decided they were going to rely upon the executive power mm. itself, a kind of um, an element of the executive power which uh, has been interpreted as conferring on the government uh, a power to do things uh, in the national interest, mm. a sort of loosely expressed nationhood power, mm. the limits of which haven't really been explored. And so they said, all right, we're going to spend this money using the nationhood power, but we'll get a law to authorise the expenditure mm. And the law will, res- will, will rely upon a provision of the Constitution that says you can pass a law which is incidental to the exercise of a power. Mm. So it's a kind of little bit of a bootstraps exercise. So you have oh. the, the executive <laughs> power and, and we're going to spend this money and we'll make a law which will um, support the expenditure of money. The, mm. And that law was called the Tax Bonus Act. And that was using fi- Section 5139 of exactly the Constitution. Exactly right. The incidental power. The power to make law is incidental to the exercise of other powers which might be legislative powers or executive powers. That's right. Um, um, and uh, anyway, uh, Mr. Pape came and argued the case before the court and there was, uh, I think, every, you know, the, the various uh, parties appeared before the court. Uh, it was an unusual case and uh, not surprising, perhaps, that there hadn't really been any real challenge to the spending power of the executive because who wants to challenge <laughs> people spending money uh, on them? There's been a few old cases in the <laughs> yeah, 70s. that's right, but... yeah, AAP and so forth, yeah. Uh, the long and the short of it was that Mr Pape lost his battle, but he won a war. Mm. We said that there was a component, by majority, that there was a component of the executive power which would support this kind of expenditure and that the Tax Bonus Act as an incidental uh, exercise of the incidental power would, would support that. Mm. And that, uh, therefore, the expenditure was valid. But in the course of that decision, the court held that the appropriation uh, legislation upon which they had, provisions upon which they had re- relied, was not of itself sufficient to authorise the expenditure. That was simply a necessary condition. Mm. And there was a lot of history of appropriations mm-hmm. which was considered by the court in that. So in other words, it wasn't enough to authorise expenditure of public money that you had an appropriation. You mm-hmm. had to find some other source of power, either a statute which was enacted under a Commonwealth head of power or in the executive power itself. And something in, else. In, in something else, yeah. And it might have been... In some cases, for example, you can spend money under Section 64 of the Constitution mm. as part of the administration of government departments, obviously. Mm. And then there are questions of the power of the, uh, the Crown to do things that uh, sort of legal persons can do, mm-hmm. like uh, enter into contracts and so forth. Anyway, that was, the, um, that was the upshot of that case. So appropriations was not enough to give you the, um, give you the authority to spend the money. You had to have it, but you had to have something more. So then the next uh, person who wanted to challenge expenditure of government uh, money was Mr Williams. Mm. And Mr Williams had children in a Queensland public school and uh, in this public school there was being provided a school chaplaincy program which was using Commonwealth funding. And the Commonwealth funding was provided pursuant to an agreement entered into between the executive government and uh, I think it was Scripture Union Union Queensland as Mm. a provider. And there was no... uh, uh, statutory authority for this. No, so it's a straight question of 
spending yeah. Yeah. under a contract yeah. and the capacity to yeah, do that that's right. without and, legislation. And the appropriation didn't get them there. But the key question became, did they have authority? Mm. And uh, at the, um, at the, uh, early, in the early stages of the argument, uh, the court raised with the parties, and the Commonwealth was appearing and all the states were appearing. The states weren't themselves necessarily opposing mm. the expenditures because after all that was happening within the states. But the states hadn't been really parties to the agreement. Mm. I might point out, just as a diversion, just to clear away something, that the Commonwealth does have power under Section 96 of the Constitution. The Parliament can make laws authorising the Commonwealth to make conditional grants to the states. Mm -hmm. So this could have been funded through a Section 96 mm. grant mm. under a law made by the Parliament and then the money any, could be... On any terms it thinks yeah, fit. That's exactly right. And that's how the Commonwealth has got into a lot of funding in areas where it doesn't actually have legislative yeah, power. Like roads or... Uh, roads and all sorts of universities, etc. <laughs> But this wasn't a Section 96 thing. They hadn't used Section 96. And no doubt there, there are perhaps political reasons why the Commonwealth sees greater benefit in direct funding. Mm. Um, so uh, then in the early course of the argument, uh, we said to the parties, it shouldn't be assumed that the executive power will authorise expenditure on any matter about which the Commonwealth could make a law. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was an assumption, what was called the common assumption yes. in the reasons, that the executive uh, power of expenditure extended to anything on which the Commonwealth could make a law, mm. even if there weren't a law made for mm -hmm. it. And we said, no, uh, that's, a, that's an assumption which uh, we should examine. And this led to uh, the states quickly readjusting their positions because uh, uh, I think some of the states probably saw this as... Um, redressing an imbalance between the Commonwealth themselves, but for whatever reason, mm. uh, they changed, uh, they, they um, attacked the common assumption. Uh, this was described by Justice Hayden in his dissenting judgment as a uh, renversement des alliances, <laughs> he said, which uh, left, I think he used the old uh, poetic reference, left the parties like... Um, armies uh, clashing on a darkling plain. <laughs> it's a very colourful description well, of the process that you, followed. You might have upset the common assumption apple cart. <laughs> and that, was the, uh, that was the way that was being put. Anyway, uh, we ended up holding that um, uh, the, uh, the expenditure could not be, could not be uh, authorised under the executive power, absent legislation, and it mm. wasn't enough that you might be able to fit it under some topic, uh, some topic of uh, Commonwealth legislative power. Mm. Mr Williams, of course, had brought uh, as part of his challenge that uh, this uh, expenditure offended against the religious freedom provision mm -hmm. in section 116 mm. of, the, um, of the Constitution, but that was quickly disposed of, that, that argument uh, didn't get up. So the real focus in the end was on this question of executive spending power. Mm. So uh, that was the outcome of that case. And then the government had to quickly pass legislation to cover all the things that they were spending money on that didn't have legislative footing. That's right. There are about 400 programs, I think, and there was an ambulatory bill uh, uh, act passed which uh, effectively um, uh, apply, applied to all ex uh, programs, whatever relevant head of power would support them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of... Uh, uh, any relevant head of power <laughs> is invoked. 
So that then, uh, so the the uh, spending program and the contractual arrangements with Scripture Union and so forth uh, were uh, continued, and uh, then Mr. Williams brought or, or resumed, and then Mr. Williams brought uh, uh, a second challenge, mm. and in that case uh, we said, well. Uh, uh, the act did not help them because there wasn't actually a relevant head of yes. power. There was argument about whether social services benefit of students' power. Mm. Applied and it was that didn't. But there's no head of power to provide chaplain services. Oh, that, and not as such. No, you'd have to fit it into something, something else. else. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so um, uh, that was uh, that was the last case about spending power. Mm. Um, so can I just stop you there? This issue has become to the forefront of our attention as the postal survey or, or so-called plebiscite is in the news currently and uh, some applicants have gone before the High Court to seek a challenge on the Commonwealth's ability to spend money to run this survey. Obviously I'm not going to express any view on what might happen there but um, it appears that... I was um, looking forward to your legal uh, advice on the topic. Absolutely <laughs> not. Um, uh, it appears that uh, the argument being put against expenditure of money on the postal plebiscite is that there is no statutory authority for it. Mm, of course, because the statutory authority that would have been for it didn't succeed passing Parliament last time the government yeah, tried to pass that. That's a good point to fill in. So my understanding is, and this is simply based on what I've seen in the uh, in the newspaper reports, that uh, reliance is being placed on the legislation which uh, establishes the Australian Bureau of Statistics and mm. its functions and that the plebiscite is to be characterised as a survey which would be authorised, an expenditure on which mm. would be authorised under that legislation. Mm. Now that may reduce to a question of statutory interpretation, mm. what does the uh, ABS legislation authorise? Mm. I don't know, it may be that the Commonwealth would take some sort of fallback position, mm. that there's some element of the executive power without a statutory authority which would support the expenditure. Uh, what will be happening is there will presumably have been directions given mm. and there will be um, submissions filed electronically and they will be available for people to see on the High Court website. It's not like on TV where people suddenly rush into court with documents and slam them down on the bar table saying, I've got this smoking gun and it's all going to change the case. I mean, it's all up there on the High Court website for exactly us to see. Exactly right. And before the so case... People like you and I can read this material before we before the case is actually heard. That's right. And after the case is heard within a day or so, you can actually watch the oral argument I know, and they're on often the High Court website. Oh, it's tr- yeah, it's it's wonderful re- watching, you know. <laughs> but I do understand that it's very popular with uh, students on key cases, and That's you right. get a sense of, um, uh, and of course for the uh, members of the public who are interested in at least getting a flavour of the mm. argument and uh, the nature of the process of the uh, of the constitutional argument between counsel and the courts and the the very interactive questioning process yes. that goes on, because when the court sits. When the court comes in to hear this case, it will have read, the members of the court will have read all the written submissions so that I know the detailed arguments being put and what follows is the oral submissions and in the course of those very interactive stuff as they tease out uh, weaknesses, strengths, the key issues and so forth. I mean, I think that the High Court has been in the news more in the last year and a half than I'd ever you know, seen before and it's, I mean, even these cases coming up now with the the court having to decide about people's um, dual citizenship. Section 44 and, of the Constitution. You know, running into court to have to have these things determined. I mean, 
this is a very busy high court at the moment. It certainly is. <laughs> is it usual for the court to be able to put aside its normal workload and, and hear these urgent applications of these cases certainly, that Certainly, uh, that decision? has happened before, and I know that in urgent cases on previous occasions, I can't give you chapter and verse, that we have moved a case out of one list and into a later list because of a, a matter of high urgency. Mm. I mean, it all depends. It's a matter of judgment. Um, sometimes, of course, you've got to make sure that the parties have had adequate time to put proper submissions. Mm. And then it's also not unusual um, in very urgent cases for the court to give a decision on the spot if mm. you've got a clear majority. And, and to say then the, publish, the answer is yes, and you can the, go ahead or, or you can't not, go ahead. And then publish their reasons later. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr French. Okay, my pleasure. Just Cases is a production of Monash Law School. Music in this episode by Poddington Bear. Be sure to find us online, justcasespodcast.com, and on Twitter. Our handle is Just Cases Show. And if you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. 